0: You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information
1: on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. We're blessed this morning to have with us Paul and Carrie Ann Leitner, all the way from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul, since I don't know how many of you know of him. I have just met him and listened to his podcast some, and um, it's been real good. I recommend it. He's a worship pastor at the First Evangelical Free Church in Minneapolis. He has a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Michigan in Dearborn, and um, I guess that's a master's from Bethel Seminary. Uh, his master's in Christian thought. Before that, he spent 15 years in vocational ministry in a number of different roles and different denominational settings. He's been a worship pastor in the Assemblies of God, in the Evangelical Covenant Church, and now the E-Free Church, you can call it. Paul's taught theology, biblical studies, courses in Christian high school, directed parachurch ministries, and recorded and released original music. And he has a lovely wife and 17 children. Oh, no, that's three, right? Three, Three children, sorry. I'm sorry, I missed that. Paul also hosts the podcast I mentioned earlier called Deep Talks. So why don't we welcome Paul Anleitner this morning. Thanks, Rob. All
0: right. I got to compose myself because I'm not used to having Andy Squires leading worship every week. And I, I know you guys are, but. Me and my wife are a mess right now after that. Um, You know, there is some good to social media. Like, you might not see it, but, um, you know, I think I met Andy years ago. We had some overlapping friends, and then he sent me a message on social media saying, hey, can I get your email address? I want to send you a song. I was like, oh, sure. So I open up my email, and there's this, like, rough mix of a song called Cherry Blossoms. I, I just bawled my eyes out. I didn't even know the backstory on it, which made it worse. You know, that that put me in a pool of tears on the floor. So, uh, man, you guys are really, really fortunate. There's some awesome leaders here. I'm, I'm really thankful to be here. Well, we're going to talk a little bit today about the past, our present moment, and how the past should inform our future as the people of God. So if you got your Bibles, the scripture text that we're going to be in this morning is going to be in Jeremiah 29. We're not going to unpack it quite yet, but I want you to be able to queue it up on your phones or your, um, if you have a physical Bible. That's great to do, too. And I want to set the stage for this the scripture text that we're going to be in, and we're going to go into the deep, deep ancient past before we get into some more recent past and then talk about what this means for our future. I want to tell you a story. It's it's a true story. It's a really hard story. It's a difficult story, but it's a story that's actually central to the biblical narrative. It's one that I think is is key to us really understanding God's story the way That saints past understood it the way the authors of scripture understood God's story. And I think it's really central in a time in which the church in America is in a bit of a crisis. That we get to reclaim God's story as the people of God. Reclaim our vocational calling. Because we're called to a specific job in the world. So this story is set a long time ago in a neighborhood far, far away from here. We're in the ancient Near East, some 2,500 years ago, so 6th century BC. And, you know, many generations have already passed since the good old days of King David in Israel. Um, There has been a history of some kings that have not followed after God's heart, have not followed God's will in the world. They've strayed away from the Torah. So we're long past these old glory days. And Jerusalem in 587 B.C. gets invaded by the Babylonian armies. And the prophets had warned about this stuff. They get invaded by the Babylonian armies led by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. And they sack the city. They raise it to the ground. They destroy the temple, the very place where God's presence was supposed to dwell. And in 586... They take, you know, this is a pretty long siege, pretty long time of destruction, long several month campaign, maybe even a full year campaign. They take the dead bodies of the the people, the people of God that were in Jerusalem. They take the dead bodies and they stack them in a valley just outside the walls of the city, a valley called Hinnom. They stack the bodies and they burn them. Now, just interesting side note for you guys, the Valley of Hinnom. In the New Testament, we actually see this phrase pretty regularly, although in Greek, it's Gehenna. So just about any time Jesus talks about hell in the Gospels, say for one or two examples, the New Testament, the Gospel authors say it's the word Gehenna, which is just in Greek, Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. So these bodies are stacked and burned in what we could call hell. And the remaining survivors in 586 BCE, they're hauled off into Babylon, into captivity, into exile. And, you know, they're looking back on this time. They're looking back, and you just have to picture it. We don't even have a frame of reference in our American history for something like this. I mean, this is like September 11th times a thousand. It's so hard to picture how devastating this was for the people of God, for Israel. This was, this was God's promise to them. They were to be God's covenant people. Wasn't God supposed to protect us? Didn't God live, his presence live in that temple? And now the temple's been destroyed by these pagans, right? These pagans and and the bodies of our family members have been stacked and burned in that valley of Hinnom. And they remember back to maybe even some of their history and they go, oh, That was also the valley some of our ancestors would worship false gods in. That was the same valley that many of them put their own children in disobedience to God. They started worshiping false gods like Moloch, and they put their children in the hands of bronze statues in that valley of Hinnom, and they burned their own kids alive, right? So it's that same place that Nebuchadnezzar stacks the dead bodies, and they are now in exile going, "What?" has gone wrong. This is a crisis of meaning. God, where are you? This is a crisis of faith. This is a historic crisis for the covenant people of God. What are they going to do now? Now we're in exile. God, what's your game plan here? And this is the setting for our scripture text this morning. So you guys got that context. This is where the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Jeremiah. It's set in this context. So let's look at it here, Jeremiah 29 verses four through seven. This is what the Lord, Almighty, the God of Israel, said, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's God's instructions. you too will prosper. Really, God? Like, this is your plan. Babylon is a wicked pagan empire that just raised the promised land to the ground. We're your chosen people. You picked us. You set us apart among all the other nations. Nebuchadnezzar has pillaged our people, laid waste to your temple, and your strategy is for us to plant gardens. You want us to bless this city to bless Babylon? Shouldn't we maybe try to defeat them in the same way they defeated us? Maybe we can, through violence and war, we can regain our position of power, or at the very least, because maybe that might end in defeat for us, maybe we could go out and picket or protest, or maybe we can boycott some Babylonian products, maybe try to win a culture war, That kind of strategy probably makes a lot of strategic sense, doesn't it? That's what I'd recommend. But to seek the good, to work to see the city blessed, this is your best strategy, God. God's response is yes. That's my best strategy. And it's not just in the book of Jeremiah. So this is why I think this is, this scripture text here is what we might call like a hermeneutic key. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word that means the you know the lens and the practice of how we read and try to understand Scripture. And this is a key, I think, to helping us see a thread that runs throughout Scripture that I didn't fully see in all my years growing up in the church. I didn't see it this way. I, I, I read the story differently, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I just want to show you guys for a moment, this is the reoccurring thread throughout Scripture. This has always been God's strategy for his people from abraham who was blessed why was abraham blessed i'll give you some homework read genesis 22 right abraham is blessed so that quote in genesis 22:18, 18 god says this so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed and we can go from there to the calling and formation of a very people called israel israel's very name means people who wrestle and struggle with god what a great job description right What are they called to be? Exodus 19. They're called to be a nation of priests mediating God's goodness and his vision for creation throughout the world. To the ultimate embodiment of this in Jesus, the Messiah, whose entire mission, his death and resurrection was done. Why? Because it's the verse you guys all memorized in Sunday school. Because God so loved the world this has been the reoccurring thread throughout scripture. This has always been the vocational call of the people of God. And I got to confess for much of my Christian life, I grew up in the church and we'll we'll talk a little bit about this here. I grew up in the church. I, I was in vocational ministry for years until I realized I had a very different understanding of the story. Some of it was good. Lots of true things, lots of good things, a lot of beautiful things, but in some key areas, I think I missed it. And so I want to share with you a little bit from that story and how I think I I missed some of it. And I'm not saying that all of you have missed it. I'm going to share with you some of my story, and maybe you guys have points of resonance, and maybe you go, hey, I I can't relate to this at all. But I think probably some of you will be able to relate to it a little bit. And I want to be really, really cautious as I, I frame this story Um, because there's a couple of ditches we can fall into when we start reassessing our past experiences in the church. So how many of you say, just by a show of hands, you've been born and raised and grown up in the church. Okay. So it's like most of you, most of you, right? There's a couple of ditches when you guys start looking back and you go, I'm going to look back and kind of reassess, you know, this story that I've lived in this experience of Christianity I lived in. And one ditch would be, this is certainly a ditch. When we start to reassess things, we could completely close ourselves down to repentance at all. We can go on one ditch. We might say, I'm not even going to reassess my past. I'm going to close myself down to even the possibility of repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It just means a new way of seeing. And that's a real ditch. A lot of people fall into, they go, hey, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to uncover stuff. You know, I feel like that's going to shake the very foundations of who I am. But this is what repentance does. It leads us into new ways of seeing, and we have to be open to that, or else we're not open to Jesus, whose message of the kingdom of God was the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. So if we're going to be people that follow the way of Jesus, like we just got done singing about this morning, we've got to be open to repentance. Okay, so we fall in this ditch. It's like, I'm never going back. I think there's real possibility that we can keep in these sorts of confirmation bias feedback loops. Where we just stay stuck in our old ways of thinking. But there's another ditch. And maybe some of you who are my age or younger, I have to say I think a lot of us fall into this ditch oftentimes too. We start reassessing our past and start looking back at our faith. There's another ditch that we can fall into that I sometimes just call it's chaotic deconstruction. In this ditch, people become much more aware of the dysfunctions they experienced. In their, I'm going to speak primarily to my own experience in the evangelical church world. I bet that's probably where many of you were born and raised to. They become so aware of the dysfunctions. And there's a lot of dysfunctions. I experienced a lot of dysfunctions in, in my church life. And they become so aware of that. They're so hurt by those dysfunctions that their mode of being and interacting with their past is to just say, let's just tear the whole thing down, burn it to the ground. That's why it's chaotic deconstruction, right? And in doing so, they just take a sledgehammer to every single wall of faith in their house. And what they've done oftentimes in doing that is they've destroyed really good things, that people, like, I think about my parents. My parents were first-generation evangelical Christians. They got born again. They had their born-again experience. That, that kind of terminology has kind of fallen out of fashion. But they had their born-again experience at the tail end of the charismatic renewal movement in the 70s. And, and they fell in love with Jesus. And they were so wanting to see God's goodness in the world demonstrated to people who have been told God wasn't good. Right? I bet some of you had maybe come to faith at that time period and my parents they worked so hard to give us so much and i look back on a lot of the things my parents did and i go how did they do this we were at church every sunday every wednesday every tuesday home group my mom got up every morning at five in the morning to pray for us for an hour they sent us to a k through 12 christian school We were in this immense experience of Christian community. And I got newsflash for you. Christian community is a community filled with people and people are messed up. Okay? So there's going to be that there. The chaotic deconstruction goes, I'm going to sever all the relationship I have with my parents, people of the previous generation, and I'm just going to burn this thing to the ground. And there's a real ditch there. And I'm I'm empathetic to it, guys, because I know I'm not going to tell you all these anecdotes with the time that we had this morning. I've seen some horrible, horrible horrible stuff in the church i have so i get it i get those of you that have experienced immense pain but you know what guys just tearing the whole thing down is not better i promise you that i've seen people i went you know for years i was a, 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 a traveled around the country did worship conferences and stuff like that right and i've seen a lot of my peers that a in that in those circles so really really charismatic like if you know what a fire tunnel is that's what i'm talking about if you don't we can talk after maybe we don't want to talk about that after so really really charismatic i've seen friends that have gone into this mode of chaotic deconstruction they don't have a blueprint for how they're going to reconstruct it's just like we're burning this thing to the ground and i've seen them trade their belief they go i don't believe in prophetic words or words of knowledge but now they're into horoscopes and tarot cards and i go that's not an improvement That's not an upgrade here. Like, so I I just, I'm not in either one. I want to say, as we start this journey of rethinking the story, I don't want to be in either one of those ditches. I don't want to trade in, you know, one side of the political spectrum for another side of blind allegiance to the political, a different political side of the different political spectrum. I don't want that. We need to have a positive path to reconstruct. Repentance has a goal to it, a telos. Okay, so while there were so many wonderful people in my Christian experience over the course of my life, I have to confess that I was plugged in, though there were many great efforts of people that I really, really loved. There was also this kind of larger network, a larger subculture that it didn't matter if you went to a uber charismatic church like me or you were at a Southern Baptist church, you all knew what McGee and me was, right? You all knew, for some of you a little bit, little bit younger, you all knew Veggie Tales, right? So we, there's this subculture that you could be in all different straight, uh, stripes and shapes and kinds of evangelical, and yet there was this kind of overarching network, VBS curriculum. You know, it's hard to come up with a VBS curriculum. So we might just go buy one. And a lot of churches do that. And what ends up happening is you get this subculture because everybody's done the same VBS course. Everybody's watching VeggieTales. Everybody's doing McGee and Me. Everybody's listening to Focus on the Family. You know, and before you know it, there is this subculture that develops. So all cultures do three things. And our evangelical subculture that I grew up in did three things, some of which we did really well, some of which we need to repent, metanoia, And make improvements on. First thing we did was we told a particular guiding story, some of which was true, some of which, like we sang as the deer. I used to sing as the deer in my Christian school elementary with overhead projectors, right? Where you had to put the transparency on there. I love that song. Some of it's true, some of it needs some repentance. So we told a particular guiding story, and we're storied creatures. Unlike any other thing on this planet, we tell stories. And we do a lot of that in America. We also have, all cultures do this as well, we had specific spiritual formation practices. Practices that aim us towards the value of that story. The values of that story. And then the third thing was, we were taught a particular way that we should have relationship or interact with cultures outside of our own. Which also had a lot to do with, we were taught a theology of God's relationship, Christ's relationship, to the cultures outside of our own church or evangelical subculture. So again, those three things are, and we're going to, you know, explore these a bit. We have a guiding story. We have spiritual formation practices. And we have a relationship to culture, especially those cultures outside of our own. So let me talk a little bit about why I think we got some things wrong in our guiding story. All right. So again, a lot of a lot of you probably, though your experience isn't exactly the same as mine, here are some of the things I kind of took away as part of the guiding story of Scripture. And again, this comes through VBS curriculum, going to Christian school, Christian school curriculum. So we might have some overlapping um, points of resonance here. We're all swimming maybe in the same cultural sea. As at the core of this guiding story that I felt, maybe you didn't feel it, was a deep sense of struggle and war. A fight between good and evil. A division between the good Christian world and the evil secular world out there. Did anybody else feel that or was it just me? A fight for conquest with God on our side. And God was on our side, in particular on our side, because we weren't just a nation with Christians. We were a Christian nation. Okay? And somehow we had this manifest destiny on par with israel's relationship to god in the old testament this was kind of nobody explicitly said this and i'll show you how our spiritual formation practices maybe kind of built in some implicit connections here nobody explicitly just told me hey you know paul america is actually like the same thing as israel in the old testament but i kind of got that sense that it was all right i kind of got that sense that we were we were a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation as americans And then all of a sudden, so this is kind of how the story unfolded in my mind. We were this until like the 1960s. And then the Beatles came. Right? And they brought their, you know, especially the tail end of the Beatles career, they brought their Eastern religions with them, right? And then, then you had those beatniks and draft dodgers who didn't fight in the war like the previous generation did. And, you know, then you had Woodstock and those hippies and the sexual promiscuity and all that stuff. I'm not like wild about I'm not wild about sexual promiscuity, right? But, and then Roe v. Wade, right? And then prayers taken out of schools. And all of a sudden, we have this movement away from being a Christian nation. Now, that world out there, again, keep in mind, our relationship to the culture outside of us, the good culture is now at war with the evil secular culture emerging. And so we were immersed in this deep language of struggle and being at war. And so what we needed to do to save ourselves from the communists, from the hippies, you know, from the Satanists, from those people that played Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) I never fully understood that one, you know. Um, what we needed to do was we needed to do things like take a stand for Christ. We needed to sign up to be. In the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. Did anybody sing that song? I may never march. You know, so nobody explicitly told me, hey, Paul, you're at war with the secular culture out there, but that's a spiritual formation practice that you do with children. If you're singing it every day at VBS and then you make these connections like I was doing in my Christian school, which every morning we started off by putting our hands over our hearts and we said pledge to an American flag first and then to a Christian flag second, nobody flat out told me, you know, those are the same things, but the practices in me made an implicit connection, which was hard to differentiate. And again, I'm not saying... Like, the people that did that were bad guys. It was just part of the culture that we were in. So I'm marching around going, I'm in the Lord's army, hands over my heart, you know. And I'm making all of these connections to the story. Maybe maybe none of you did, but I certainly did, right? Think about so, so much of our language and how we told the story. What do we do? We win souls. Nobody talks about winning souls in the Bible. That's competitive language. We send our children to youth conferences called battle cry. I went to a a stadium youth conference that was called battle cry. You know, there's implicit connections being made there. We, we train people in apologetics classes to defend their faith. What is the running thread there? Struggle war competition, right? Right. And I'm not saying there isn't biblical language about war and struggle. Like, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about putting on the Lord's armor, right? The helmet of salvation. But you know what? In in that context, in Ephesians 6, he's talking about the struggle that Jews and Gentiles are having at being one in a new church community. And he's warning them about the deceptions of Satan that would try to splinter them apart. And he says, you better put on the Lord's armor. That's a little different than saying you better put on the Lord's armor so that you can own the libs in a debate, (laughs) right? You know, that's different than saying "You, you better put on the Lord's armor so that you can win an argument. So I'm not discounting the language of struggle that we see in scriptures, and there's biblical imagery of war, but that central thread the formation practice, we already talked about a couple of them, right? I make these connections between, well, if I pledge to the American flag, then to the Christian flag, am I actually more service to America than I am to Christ? What do I do? I'm a kid. I don't even know what to think, right? I got, um, you know, as so I got a little later in my like early ministry years, I would do these prayer meetings and worship meetings. And again, well-intended, like good people. I'm not demonizing anybody here. I want to make that clear. That doesn't do us any good, but I'm just saying we've got to have room for repentance. I'd go to these meetings, and people would be chanting over and over, God, end abortion and send revival to America. Anybody ever sit in one of those meetings? Now, like, I'm not wild about abortion, guys, but here's one of the things that seemed like I started to think was like, okay, maybe revival is dependent on us getting the right people into public office that are going to support these particular policies, And all of a sudden, I'm making this implicit connection between politics and a particular way of doing politics in the world being like revival. Christ can't have his way in the world unless that thing happens. And that's not the true story. It's not, (laughs) you know. And a part of all of this was our relationship to culture. I felt was marked by like three things that we, we were supposed to, this is how we were to relate to culture. We were to be separate from it, we were to oppose it, and then we were to try to convert people, right? And if you talk to anybody, maybe there's a few people that didn't raise their hand when I asked earlier about how many of you grew up in the church, and, and maybe some of you came to faith later in life, and, you know, maybe you were scratching your head when you're like, hey, I don't understand why, like, my next-door neighbor shuts off all their lights on Halloween, And then they go to church on Sunday. Why don't they pass out candy to kids? They don't understand it, right? I was just a kid. You know, we didn't do Halloween, and I'm not trying to get into a debate about that. But as a kid, I felt really, really awkward when I had talked to my friends at public schools and stuff. They're like, what are you going to be for Halloween? I was like, man, I really want to be a Power Ranger, but I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just want to go get some candy and meet my neighbors. You know, that might be. But in me, I felt like I had to be against I had to be against this secular world. And you know, it produced in me this immense sense of anxiety. Even when I go to the when I'd go to the grocery store and talk to the to the cashier, right? It was like, oh gosh, I think I gotta convert them in this two minute conversation. And then I wouldn't, and I'd feel really bad, like I'm an epic failure as a follower of Jesus. So if that's my attitude towards culture, you know, it's no surprise. It's no surprise when, that this, when this is our, our public witness in the wider culture that our efforts of, at evangelism don't sound or feel like good news. They feel like a sales pitch to convert somebody to a different tribe in a culture war. And I don't want I don't need to tell you the obvious guys, but I'll, I'll call this sort of version of the Christian story today. We'll call it culture war Christianity. Because I think that was a major, major thrust. Not all of it. There's a lot of good things. We sang as the deer, and you know, there was wonderful, wonderful things, but that part of the story we gotta repent from. Jesus isn't called us to a culture war. Golly guys. And it didn't even work. The culture war has objectively failed on multiple levels of evaluation. Let's say even like the earnest intention was, we're really, really concerned that our kids are going to be assimilated by Babylon. Earnest concern. We don't want to be assimilated. There should be some differences about the way of Jesus in the world from those that don't follow the way of Jesus. That's a valid concern. But if our concern was, we better teach them to go to battle cry, defend their faith, be in the Lord's army so that they can stand when they get to be adults, I got some hard news, guys, but it just didn't work. And, I, and there's some, some really concerning statistics about this. Culture war Christianity has failed. According to Barna, two out of three millennials go to church less than a few times a year. Two out of Three. I mean, I see a lot of you here, but you're the outlier. Between 2009 and 2019, the number of millennials, so people my age, I'm an old millennial, who self-identify as Christian dropped 16%. That's, that's like an unprecedented drop. Gen Xers, there's some Gen Xers in here. They're, they dropped 8%. There are more nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not nuns in the, you know, in the Roman Catholic. Those that have no religious affiliation whatsoever. There are now more nuns than there are evangelical Christians in the U.S. for the first time in our nation's history. So at least even on that level, the culture wars failed. If that was the goal was to stop that, it didn't work. But the failure in effectiveness was a symptom of its failure to actually be in keeping with the way of Jesus and the biblical call to the people of God. Not in all parts, but in some crucial areas, we misunderstood the story. And it's time to come to grips with that if we haven't already. We misunderstood the story in some crucial ways. I think part of this was because maybe we were oblivious to the fact that we kind of had already been assimilated by Babylon. We had long been programmed to believe through these spiritual formation practices that married the American dream to the Christian story in an unholy matrimony that like our nation was like Israel in some sense. And, you know, we have to, we have to preserve and protect the kingdom of God and advance the kingdom of God through conquest and struggle and war. But you know who didn't fall for this? African American Christians, you've brought over, you brought over here against your will, s- enslaved. You didn't see necessarily America as Israel. You know what you saw it as? Babylon. And there's some really hard but really good conversations that are happening between people that look like me and people that were, their ancestors were brought over here against their will. And yet somehow, even though their slave masters were using Jesus as a weapon against them, they saw the kernel of truth and the beauty of Jesus in that and subverted that whole thing. It's remarkable, right? So we got things to learn from our black brothers and sisters in this time. It's, so I, I bring that up, not because I think I'd rather live in America than Babylon, that's for sure. I'd rather live in America than Rome. I love, you know, we go out at 4th of July and we do the fireworks and we'll wear American flag t-shirts and we love that stuff. But you know what? America isn't the kingdom of God. We are a nation that has a lot of Christians in it. That's very, very different. Very different. They're a kingdom. We are a kingdom of the world just like any other kingdom. And kingdoms rise and fall. They have periods of time in which they live in more harmony with God's will and way in the world and periods of time in which they don't. You know? Early Christians were Rome, many of them, especially the Gentiles. The apostle Paul wrote two-thirds in the Old Testament. he He was a Roman citizen. Okay? So the early church certainly understood this perspective. For the first 300 years you'd be hard pressed the church fathers disagreed on a lot of stuff but there's no no way that you would you will ever find a church father that would say something like hey you know what we should probably sing some patriotic songs to rome in our worship service together you won't find it anywhere because they saw something there as well they saw this thread that ran throughout scripture this Different story, not culture war Christianity, but the way of the exile, the way of Jesus. So let me just tell you what I think is a better story. And you can agree or disagree. That's, that's It's okay. I would just encourage you, even if this is maybe a new way of thinking, I'd love to dialogue with you more about it. But here's what I think is the more historic Christian perspective the perspective of the apostles and the martyrs this perspective that we see in the scriptures Christ is king of an unshakable kingdom a kingdom where people from every tribe and tongue are invited to pledge their allegiance to the lamb It's a kingdom not of this world. Jesus said that explicitly during his trial so whether you and I are living in America in 2021, which i still like all things considered, i'd rather live here than most other places or you were living, let's say, in nazi germany or let's say you were living in ancient rome or let's say you're even living in great britain during the revolutionary war. i mean, you know the brits thought they were a christian nation too. their king and queen, they get their coronation happens in a church. They actually have a church, the church of england. You know, they thought they were a christian nation too, right? Whether you're living in any one of those places, your vocational call remains the same. It is the same in every era, in every nation, among people of every tribe and tongue. You are to follow the way of Jesus as a sojourner in exile. Just like the people of Israel in Babylon. We are not the only people that God loves in the world but we are called to a specific vocational call to be a peculiar people. What did Peter say in Second Peter? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. What are you? You are a holy nation, a peculiar people. Eugene Peterson put it like this. So why church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death, church is the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus inaugurated kingdom of God in the world. It's not that kingdom complete, but it is a witness to that kingdom. Church is an appointed gathering of, pe- of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in the world in which death gets the biggest headlines. Man, I love that line. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. Life out of death. Life that trumps death. Life that is the last word. Jesus' life. And this is why, church, this is why Queen City, this is why Jeremiah's words to Israel 2,500 years ago are applicable to us today, because we've been grafted in to the family of God through Christ You've been grafted into this vocational call. You are not the only people that God loves, but God's called you to a job, a job description in the world. Grow something beautiful right here. Right here. Plant a garden. Seems stupid. Like, how are we going to win the world if we plant a garden? Plant a garden. Raise some good kids. Andy's got that one down. (laughs) In every situation, ask, what is the most good that I can bring to bear right here and right now? Bless the world. Bless the city you inhabit. In its welfare is your welfare. If you're a musician, make beautiful music. There's a few of you in here. You know what? I mean, John Mark, I'm so glad I got to know you more in the past year. But long before I knew you personally, I saw this in your music. It was operating in this liminal space. You weren't doing culture war Christianity, and it—it it was so encouraging. I wouldn't be where I am today without your music. I mean that. And you are committed to just tell the beautiful good news, even though it doesn't fit in these spaces. You could make a ton more money if you just did things one way, or a ton more money if you just did things another way. And here you are in the way of the exile. All right. So I know there's others of you in here, but I just—I had to call John Mark on that for a second. If your music make beautiful you musician, make beautiful music. There is no beauty that doesn't come from God. If you're a tradesman, an artisan, you work with your hands, you're a plumber. Make things that work for the good of others. You're a businessman. You own a small business, an entrepreneur. Be ethical. Tell the truth in a culture that's filled with lies. There's no truth that doesn't come from God. So you bear witness to the truth by just acting ethical where you're at your stay-at-home mom raise those kids well plant a garden in Babylon if you don't have a sacred holy job as a pastor see and this is part of the dilemma I wrestled with as a kid because I was like man that whole world out there is terrible so if I'm gonna follow Jesus and I'm really glad I ended up in the vocation I have but I wish I would had a broader view because somewhere in there I kind of felt like well the most holy thing and most sacred thing for me to do is to go into ministry even though I might have these other things that I could bless the world with. And I want to encourage some of you that maybe heard that message. No, your vocational call, just bless the world. You know, if you're a businessman, God's called you to bless the world. If you're a graphic designer, make beautiful stuff that blesses the world. If you're a teacher, golly, I don't know how you guys are blessing the world, doing all these Zoom classes with kids, and oh my goodness, it's so hard. Bless the world. Now, the thing I want to wrap up with you guys on here is the sobering part of this good news, because it is good news, this vocational call. You know, a lot of people that entered into Babylonian exile, they never made it out to see the promised land. Israel was in exile for 70 years. So there's a lot of people that went in, they didn't come out and see the fulfillment of the promise. They, They sowed what they didn't reap in their lifetime. And we've got to regain that again. Where's our cathedral building vision? Christians in the past would start cathedral projects that they knew they're not going to finish that cathedral in their lifetime. That's unimaginable to me. To build something and be like, oh, this is going to take 300 years to finish. John Mark, I heard you talk about planting sequoias. Plant a sequoia tree. You're not going to see that thing grow. In your life, we've got to regain that. So what kind of steps can you guys take as a church community? I want to throw three reflective questions for you guys to maybe talk about like this week and talk about together. What kind of steps can you guys take? Questions you can be asking yourself to make sure you're constantly aimed at your fulfilling your vocational call. The first one is this. Are we based on a true story? Don't just read the Bible or study it because the lens you've been reading the Bible through might be that culture war lens. So how do you get exposed to a different way of seeing? Talk to people outside your church, your stream, read church history, get a broader sense of what God has done in the church, learn about the ways Christians before you have read the story and told the story. And then if you hear someone talk in a particular way, that doesn't sound like the way that anybody talked for like 2000 years before this, you might go, Hey, that could be a red flag. You know, it's not saying there couldn't be new language to talk about faith in God, but If it's brand new, we might go, why didn't nobody else before this talk this way? And second question, do our spiritual formation practices shape people to be immersed in God's story, to become more Christ-like and bless the world? Is what we're doing in worship and not just in singing, what we're doing outside of the home. You could, if you sit here and you listen, I might be going long. Sorry, guys. If we sit here and you listen to a 35, 40-minute sermon every week, you have someone as amazing as, as Andy and everyone else in the worship team here sing four or five really, really good songs. And then your drive home, you digest every day on your commute, like political talk radio. And then you cruise YouTube for like three, four hours a day, ingesting conspiracy theories or any other thing. I'm telling you what's going to happen. The grid sermon that you heard on Sunday morning is not going to do much in the wake of all the other input. You binge Netflix six, seven hours a day, you know, that's extreme, right? But those practices are going to shape you more than the 30, 40 minute sermon you hear on Sunday. So we need to have practices that shape people throughout the week, throughout the day. I'm really encouraged. I talked to a vineyard pastor recently and he said, you know what? Our budget, we've set aside a huge portion of our budget of the last couple of years to provide every single one of our members an opportunity to go to counseling if they need it to see a spiritual director i said that's wow that's awesome who was up here earlier robin adam was that his name i think adam you might have done premarital counseling for my sister where are you maybe he's not in here there yeah that's awesome you guys got counselors here because it's not just the story it's the character in us that needs to be shaped into christ likeness and then the final question is this is it going to be culture war or culture care we're we going to care for culture or we're we going to be at war with culture. There's no culture-less Christianity. The son of God was a first century Jew. He was dressed like a Jew. He spoke Aramaic, celebrated Jewish customs. We're not at war with the place that we're at. Christ is present and at work there. The New Testament was written in Greek. It was spread along Roman roads that the Roman Empire had, you know, had, had, had built. So we, God is at work in culture. He's setting us apart for a particular purpose and call. If Nebuchadnezzar tells us to bow bow before his statue, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're going to say no. But we're still going to bless Babylon. We're still going to call for it. And you know what? If we die before we see kingdom come, the message that the hope the apostles clung to when they were being thrown to the lions was not that, well, this is probably going to pragmatically work. The hope that those early Christians clung to was not that the scales of injustice were going to be set right in their lifetime, but because Jesus the Messiah was not abandoned to the grave and was risen again, though they too may die before seeing the world set right, that would not be the end of the story. And that's why I love what we were singing today about the bread and the wine as a weapon, that resurrection life if we die before the world is set right, the hope we have in Christ is you're going to be risen again and you'll see that final setting right of the world. I'll leave you guys with this. Some early words in Jesus' great manifesto from the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe all this will help you reframe these words. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray, I don't know. We're doing on time. I'm sorry. Let's pray together. And then, um, you know, if you want to sing a hymn or something, go for it. Jesus, this way is hard. It's difficult. It's a narrow way. And we repent of the ways in which we have maybe not understood your story right. We give thanks for those people that have gone before us and have been faithful in building things that we can't even understand how hard it is to build and and we're so thankful for them, but we just also are thankful for the constant ongoing work of sanctification that you've called us to. And that we, we have the possibility, the joy of repentance, that we can see the world a different way that we might produce life in the world. And I just pray that you'd help us and empower us by your spirit to bless the city, to bless where we live. Make Queen City Church a place where people go, you know what, if those guys packed up and they closed up shop, we would really, really miss them. And so may that be their witness in the city, that they wouldn't be the best church in the city. They'd be the best church for the city. And uh, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: (laughs) Paul's made me think this morning. And um, I can remember... Uh, the Lord spoke to me, gosh, this could be over maybe 25 years ago. Um, And it was about the, um, when the people of God were dispersed to Babylon. And the comment Paul made really touched me when he said, the object is to get out, to get back. In other words, there were those who were, they were exiled to Babylon, but their calling was to actually become something greater than what they were when they went in. And so when there was a call to come back to Jerusalem, to the next, um, the next part of God's plan for them as a people, very few may made that turn. And it's if you go back and read, they numbered not just every single person who turned to fully go back into God's plan. They numbered the animals that came back. And so as I think through what Paul is saying, particularly the culture war idea um How do people respond when they feel like they've lost the culture war? They respond in anger. They respond in fear. And they say things, check the Internet. They should never say to people. They've never met, and it hurts. And it's a trap. It's a trap. Um... Celebrated my 70th birthday last weekend. It was the greatest birthday I ever had. And I'm saying that to say this, and I'm saved in 1968. And I've lived through decade after decade after decade. And I've come to this place in my life. When my time's over here, What goal do I have for my life personally? And it's this, to be kind, to be joyful, to do something good for somebody else. I see people that are bitter. I see people that are angry. I see people that say terrible things. And you cannot tell me that's the result of the gospel. Because it is not. There's something else at work you must see. And so I don't talk a lot about politics. I don't talk about all these sides. But I'm saying this. What you say and what you behave and how you act and how you treat people is a direct reflection on The real faith you have, not the cultural impartation you've been a part of. And we all have. So, that's just, that's how I feel about this. I don't, I don't. Even through the election, I don't know. What do you do? You win it. you lose it. Dependent on your perspective. But that's not what Jesus is pointing to. Discipleship, which is something our team has been talking more and more about and something we're going to try to major on in the coming weeks and months and years, is so important to really follow Jesus in the day-to-day way. In a day-to-day way. Now, there are all kinds of ways people express that. I, I get that. Um, I've suffered all kind of criticism for things I have or have not said. How loudly or quietly I've been. Guess what? I don't care. You didn't die for my sins. I don't owe you that. You know what I'm saying? Come on no but who who are you in the dark who are you when things are hard how do you respond are you afraid are you bitter or, or do you have that peace that passes understanding do you understand what i'm saying that thing we're supposed to have that we say we've got until we need to have it and we realize we don't that's when repentance comes in that's when you go back to jesus and say, i got it wrong I need to make some changes here. So, anyway, I don't know how much sense this is making, but um, I do want to do this. I want us to receive an offering for Paul today. You can give by cash or check. We have envelopes at both buckets. Once again, you can give on your phone by text, texting QCC Giving to 77977. Is that behind me there? If it's not at 77977, follow the prompts and select guest speaker for the fund. Or you can also go to queencity.church website, select giving, and be sure you select guest speaker for the fund. Okay, everybody okay? Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Be good to somebody. Maybe we'll have a chance to fellowship outdoors. It looks really pretty. And, Father, we pray that you would keep us all safe from sickness and disease and those who aren't, that you would heal and bless and help in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources,
0: visit queencity.church.